So we're heading into the holiday shopping season. And like everyone, I've been bombarded with ads for connected everything. I'm seeing smart fridges, smart TVs, the latest phones. (laughs) And it's been a wild disconnect from the reporting I've been doing for the past few weeks on the 3G shutdown. That's Kat Sikreski. She covers tech policy for The Post. And she's talking about the shutdown of these old 3G wireless networks that power a lot of the tech people are still using today. Things like life alert alarms, older cell phones and tablets. Right now, you know, there are many Americans who are reliant on older cell phones, who have alarm systems in their phone, who maybe use devices like life alert, who are at risk of losing service as early as February 2022 as companies try to move on to the next generation of cell phone networks. That can mean leaving behind some of America's most vulnerable populations. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Renny Svernovsky. It's Tuesday, November 16th. Today, why America's digital divide could soon get worse. And later in the show reporting on the aftermath of an insurrection. So cell phone companies are shutting down their older 3G networks next year, and that is going to cut off service for some of the most vulnerable people who have older phones, like older Americans and low-income Americans. It also could affect a wide range of other devices, including medical alert systems, home alarm systems, and even some of the technology that police use to monitor people who have drunk driving records. So what exactly is 3G? You've already given some examples of the kinds of devices that are connected to it, but what is it? So if you think about it, right now there's been a lot of attention on 5G, the next generation of wireless technology. But when we talk about 3G, we're talking about the cell phone networks that were rolled out almost two decades ago. And so as the companies look to phase out this technology, it's been a very complicated process, especially in the middle of a pandemic, when it's a lot harder to reach people who might have older cell phones or technology in their homes. How quickly is this going to happen? When will these telecoms companies shut down 3G networks? So companies have different dates that they're shutting down their networks. The earliest is AT&T, which is shutting down its 3G networks as of February 2022. Other companies are going to remain on until the end of the year, like Verizon. But Consumer advocates are rushing to make sure that older Americans and low-income Americans who still rely on these networks are upgrading their phones so that they're not affected. And why is it being phased out by these big tele-networks? So the phone companies say that they need to phase out 3G to free up these airwaves to roll out 5G. There's really an international competition going on among phone companies to bring in faster wireless technologies. And the companies say that 5G is going to bring in a range of new services, 
new technologies and, and create new jobs. And they say in order to have the airwaves to do that, they need to phase out these 3G networks. The other reason is, you know, consumer advocates say the companies have a financial incentive to do this. As fewer and fewer people rely on 3G devices, it gets more expensive for them to run these networks because they're effectively running a whole network while making less money off of it because they have fewer devices running on it. So I imagine that you talked with people who are at risk of losing their services. What what did they tell you about, you know, why they haven't been able to upgrade yet or what their concerns are? A lot of the people I spoke to were either older Americans or children of older Americans who basically are relying on 3G to power their home emergency alert system. So if you think of things like life alert bracelets that people use to call 911 if they have an emergency in the home. And one of the big concerns is in many instances to upgrade these devices, you need to have technicians come in your home and and do that for you. And a lot of the families I spoke to were really worried about having technicians come into the home, not knowing what their status is with vaccination. And so, you know, I talked to some people who went to some pretty extreme lengths um, in order to do that. My name is Andrew. I live in New York. One man, Andrew, and his mother um, relies on a emergency alert medical system. The help I've fallen, I can't get up button. So what's going to happen with my mom's button? It's just going to stop working, right? Like, what? But I did call uh, my provider and they and they said, no, in fact, you need to upgrade before this date or you're going to be stuck, stuck without safety in my mind, right? Which is unthinkable. So that was unacceptable to me. So he actually took off from work, flew to her home in Florida, and then um, upgraded the system himself with the help of, um, you know, technicians over the phone because she wasn't comfortable with people she didn't know coming into her home. I knew I wasn't going to let anyone in to help her, not in the middle of the pandemic. She's 89. And and I was like, wow, like how many people are there that, that don't have me, right? Like that don't have a son or a daughter or a friend who can help them with this. I'm curious on how this is all going to play out. Like, like the executives at these companies must know about this. It doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, I think someone needs to tell them, right? Like that, you know, it's a pandemic and um, a little more time would be nice. There's a big concern that low-income Americans may also be disproportionately affected by the shutdown just because they might not have the resources to upgrade their phones or other devices as frequently. You know, when I was talking to advocates about this issue and and looking for people to talk to for my story, I found, you know, how challenging it is just to find people who are still using 3G phones and who might not know about the shutdown. You know, one of the issues is a lot of the outreach that consumer advocacy groups do and and a lot of the ways we normally find people as reporters to talk to for stories is, is we look online. We look on services like Twitter and in Facebook groups and other places. And, you know, if you're using a flip phone still, if you don't have a smartphone, you, you might not be accessing those channels. And, and so that's one of the things that has advocates most worried is because we're in a pandemic, you might have people who aren't aware that this shift is happening. What would a shutdown actually look like, you know, across broad swaths of the country? Like, are there places where a connection would just go totally down? Or is this like a case by case, phone by phone, device by device thing? 
So this is a big question, what the coverage will look like in rural areas after 3G is shut down. You know, one of the things is in some rural areas, people rely on specific local carriers, smaller phone carriers that might leave their 3G networks on. So in some rural areas, maybe your 3G phone will still work. The problem is when people leave those rural towns, if they're traveling, driving somewhere else, they typically roam on the AT&T, the Verizon, the bigger companies' networks. And so they could suddenly be in a situation where their phone works in their town, but as soon as they leave, their phone just stops working because it no longer has that 3G coverage nationwide. So what are the other concerns when it comes to shutting down the 3G networks? So there's a public safety concern. Um, Actually, law enforcement in North Dakota has been warning the FCC that the 3G shutdown could impact many of the breathalyzers and monitoring bracelets that they actually use to monitor people who have been convicted of drunk driving. Um, So that just kind of goes to show the wide range of devices that are potentially implicated in the shutdown that people might not be thinking of beyond their phones and tablets. And, you know, big picture, this comes at a really complicated time. This is all coming at a moment where there is a global shortage of chips, which might make it harder for cities, states, law enforcement to upgrade devices or sensors that rely on 3G networks. It also could make it more complicated for consumers who are trying to maybe upgrade their phones or tablets. How are how are networks responding to these concerns? So the phone companies generally have been saying that we've given people plenty of notice that this change is happening, that this plan to shut down 3G has been in the works for years. Some of the companies have um, delayed their timelines because of the pandemic. And they generally say, you know, we have been making sure people are aware of this. In some instances, they've been offering free devices or, you know, special phone plans for people who are affected. And they're saying that they've been cooperating with the public and and trying to get the word out about this to their customers. So they, you know, in general are planning to move ahead next year with this shutdown, despite the concerns that we've heard from consumer advocates and, and from some people who just feel like this is happening at the worst possible time. So for people who are still using, you know, 3G devices or know someone who is still doing so, You know, what should they do? What steps should they take so that they're not left behind and left without service? So my colleague Heather Kelly actually put together a really helpful guide. A lot of the phone carriers right now are offering special promotions where people can actually get free phones to upgrade to if they're switching off of a 3G phone. You know, the one thing I would just say that consumer advocates have warned is there's a lot of concern as many of us have experienced getting a new phone or getting a new cable package, often there's you know a free device and an introductory rate, and then you see your bill go up yep. dramatically after the fact. And um, mm-hmm. consumer advocates are really concerned that this could be a moment that the phone companies use to upsell consumers. So I just say, you know, as you're looking into some of those deals that the phone companies are offering to upgrade your phone, just be careful to read the fine print. Can the FCC do anything to help ease this transition away from 3G? And and have they put out any statements about it? 
So far, we've seen the FCC take largely a passive role in this process. The agency has put out an advisory to consumers alerting them about the 3G transition, and they've worked with certain groups to try to reach out to some of the most vulnerable communities like older Americans and low-income Americans who might be affected. But consumer advocates would like to see the FCC take a more active role in managing the process to ensure that people aren't being left behind during the pandemic And also just generally to ensure that as these shutdowns occur, we don't see the phone companies try to upsell consumers and force them on to more expensive plans. And this is, you know, a critical time for the FCC in a lot of ways because they just announced the Biden administration, a new nominee for a commissioner as as well as the new chair. Wednesday this week, we'll see the confirmation hearing. And so this is kind of coming at a moment where the FCC isn't fully staffed yet and this change is underway. What are the larger implications of this, this end to 3G networks? So the big implications of the 3G shutdown is it just shows the persistent inequalities that occur in our country when it comes to digital access. The pandemic has really put a fine point on the fact that access to internet, access to wireless networks is essential. This shutdown shows that There's still broad inequalities in the technology that people have access to. And often, you know, when big upgrades like this happen, although there's broad agreement that they're a positive development, that it's a good thing that the U.S. continues to push forward into new technologies, it's usually older and low-income Americans who are most affected and at risk of being left behind. Kat Zakreski is a tech policy reporter for The Post. Alexis Diao produced this segment. After the break, what happens when extremist thinking moves from the fringe to the mainstream? We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. On Monday, Steve Bannon, one of former President Trump's advisors, walked into the FBI's field office in Washington and turned himself in. Later that afternoon, he appeared in court for the first time. Bannon had been charged with two counts of contempt of Congress because he'd refused to comply with the subpoena about January 6th. The House committee investigating the insurrection had wanted to question him about conversations he'd had before and during the riot. And specifically, they were looking at conversations he'd had with pro-Trump activists in D.C. on January 5th. Bannon is one of 35 people who've been subpoenaed by the committee. It's interviewed more than 150 people. And while some of the people involved in the insurrection, like Bannon, are potentially going to face real legal consequences, there are a lot more people who've just 
gone back to their hometowns and continued living their lives. Those are the people reporter Hannah Lam has been following. They converged in a nationally advertised and publicized event, but now they've gone back and it's diffused into into communities. And so now the same forces, conspiracy-fueled, hateful forces that we saw driving a lot of the protests at the Capitol that day, now we see that at city councils, at local governments, and at state houses. Today, we continue our series revisiting January 6th. This time, we're hearing from Hannah, who for years has tracked the progression of extremist ideologies. And we wanted to talk to her about what it's been like to report on these extremist groups. You know, when I first started covering this kind of homegrown extremism and political violence, it was in the run-up to the 2016 election when we saw a lot of these forces come out in the open. And then we saw, of course, 2017, the Charlottesville deadly Unite the Right rally. I'm here because our Republican values are, number one, standing up for local white identity, our identities under threat. Uh, number two, the free market. And then it was kind of just nonstop from there. But it still was considered a specialized beat. These were fringe ideas and fringe groups. And, you know, yeah, the extremism reporter will report on those groups and those wacky groups and what they're doing. Now, these issues that were once kind of fringe issues and specialized issues for an extremism beat... That's what an education reporter is dealing with at school board meetings. That is what a city council reporter is dealing with. Definitely what sort of race and identity and immigration reporters are dealing with. And for sure, political reporters, because now it's just infused in our politics and, and coverage of them. So yeah, I would say that's been the biggest change is that seeing my beat go from this, you know, kind of fringe, weird beat that was, you know, about these outcast groups now basically becoming a central theme of reporting across the newsroom. So is that something that you like saw coming? Like, were you thinking all this time, definitely based on the trends I'm seeing, this is going to become something bigger that's going to permeate absolutely every bit of reporting and all of our lives? Well, I'm always, always aware, especially having learned very hard lessons, you know, covering the um, so-called war on terror and the legacy of that and the government's actions in that, of, you know, not overhyping a threat, building a boogeyman. I really value and I really try to report as clear and sober an assessment of a threat that there is, not to hype it up, not to scare people. There are a lot of other dangers that lurk in the United States, but I don't know if I saw it coming. I definitely was paying attention and saw worrying mm -hmm. signs. And I think anybody who's a person of color, <laughs> but especially black people and immigrants in this country can tell you they felt something different <laughs> and they felt they saw signs of, um, of warning. And those are things that we've tried to document and make sure that we're paying attention to, mm -hmm. to those voices that often are early warning systems and the political class is um, late. And Hannah, what kinds of barriers have you run into while covering extremists? And like specifically after January 6th, has it been harder to keep in touch with sources? Well, I mean, in general, covering the anti-government militia movement, which was... Definitely nervous after the big investigations of January 6th and the um, 
you know, kind of conspiracy charges against Oath Keepers Associates and others. There was a period where they kind of went quiet and they didn't really want to talk and they didn't want to be on the phone, even on Signal and in our encrypted apps that we usually talk on. They really kind of went dark for a while. And then they popped up with this political prisoners narrative. And now they want to talk about that. And they want to talk about, you know, have you asked about, you know, so-and-so is deprived his heart medication in jail. Have you looked into that? This person is being held in this terrible conditions, you know, and it's really interesting as someone who I happen to be Muslim and I have personally dealt with the fallout from the war on terror where, for example, the random TSA checks, you know, where I'll get the SSSS on my on my boarding pass. That's been a fact of life for many American Muslims for years. It's just an ordinary fact of our life that we have accepted. And just so you know, SSSS stands for Secondary Security Screening Selection, which means you'll be getting an extra thorough search when you go through security at the airport. You'll get a pat down, get your carry-on bags searched and wiped to check for explosives. So it's really something to hear, you know, for example, one January 6th defendant told me, I don't know if you know this, but they have put something on our boarding pass that says SSSS. It's really, it's interesting to see people who have been so comfortable in their civil rights and civil liberties being central and guarded and everything to suddenly be confronted with the realities that are the surveillance systems of the state and the realities of uh, prison. And on this beat, how do you navigate like the, the tricky balance of giving extremists a platform and doing your due diligence as a reporter and then also of like keeping yourself safe? I'm someone who believes that if you cover extremism, you have to talk to extremists. And that doesn't mean giving them an open mic and letting them spew whatever they want. It doesn't mean letting them go unchallenged. I believe in talking to extremists and understanding what they're doing, what their thinking is, what strategies they have, um, what are their grievances, why those grievances might find resonance with, with others, how they get their views into the mainstream. I think all of those are things that I you know, are valid lines of inquiry. But in terms of like actually, you know, quoting an extremist or quoting those kinds of views, I always ask myself before I write a story Mm -hmm. like that, you know, what is new here? Are we pushing the story forward? What is the new information that is Mm -hmm. so vital that we have to talk to this person and give this person a platform? And then I also have the added layer of thinking about security. And it's not just physical security, it's Mm -hmm. digital security. A lot of times these guys first go after your DMs, your messages, your, um, you know, they dox you, they, you know, publish your, your private information online. It's a very invasive and violating kind of experience to go through to see your home address and phone number and other private information just sort of blasted out on the dark web. Yeah, it's not it's not a pleasant experience at all. Some weeks are hard on this beat. Also, I think if I'm honest with myself, there was a part of me that was like, I've covered conflicts for 20 years. I've been on war zones and battlefields. I've had, you know, really horrible things happening all around me and I've seen real scenes of war. I'm fine. Okay, I saw, you know, the riots at the Capitol. I'm fine. 
But the truth is, I do think about that day an awful lot. And I think about how unnerving it was. This was a few metro stops from my house, you know, and and to see how easy it was to just walk right in and to see the extent to which the Capitol was left a soft target that day. Yeah, that has been disturbing, honestly. And I'm glad for the chance to focus those feelings into work, into curiosity. How did it happen? Why was that allowed? Um, what does it show us and how can we prevent it from happening again? What are the big unknowns that remain about that day, remain about the before, remain about the after, and are just like real points of curiosity for you in your reporting? I think one point that comes up a lot is, will any of the leaders who were the chief instigators, organizers, and ralliers of that day will they face any sort of accountability or consequence? We've seen now over 600 um, charges of kind of the sort of foot soldiers of that day. So what happens at the leadership level? Also, the extent to which, you know, I, I think we don't know yet what kind of political capital can be gained or lost from that day. Right now in several states, my home state, Oklahoma, being you know among them, Republicans who actually said this is unacceptable and and even if it was muted and after the fact who spoke out against the violence that day are being primaried and challenged by even more right-wing contenders who would say no you're you're caving to the liberals and that day was about patriots and standing up for your country and so I think we really have to see how it's being leveraged as political capital, what that could mean for the midterms and beyond. Hannah Lamb covers extremism and domestic terrorism for The Post. To read more of her insightful reporting about the lasting effects of January 6th, look for a link in today's show notes to The Post's before, during, and after project. The story was produced by me, Renny Svernowski, and edited by Ariel Plotnik. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Rena Flores. As the holiday season approaches, there's a lot of things I've been thinking about. Should I get tested for COVID before every family or friend gathering? How do I approach my pals and ask them to do it too? Our team is wondering, what questions do you have about gathering with family and friends this year? We're bringing back advice columnist Carolyn Hacks to answer any questions you've got about holiday etiquette. Send a voice memo with your name and a question to post reports at washpost.com, and we'll try to get it answered. And if you're not a subscriber to The Post yet, try us out for just a dollar a week. You can learn more at washingtonpost.com slash subscribe. I'm Renny Svernovsky. Martine will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.